morning. It's uh, wonderful to see all of you here um, just as we enter into the Christmas season. So we commit this time to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, even as we come at your feet to learn from you, gracious God, we pray, Father, that you will let your word speak into our hearts and let your spirit cause us to respond to the Lord Jesus Christ in a way that glorifies you and honors you. Father, we commend this time to you. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, the New York Times came out with an um, uh, article story about a, uh, um, a gunman, an assassin from one of the uh, notorious uh, Mexican uh, gangs. They call it the Me Mexican drug cartels. And, cartels. and this was... Um, uh, a gunman who uh, apparently through some time sat with these reporters from the New York Times and shared his life uh, story with them. And um, it was a quite a, a moving but also a highly disturbing story. He described how uh, he was recruited into some of these drug gangs and how he started life as a uh, gunman. By the year 2017, he was only 22 years old, but he was credited with uh, over 100 kills. That means he, you know, he's committed murder over 100 times, and some of them confirmed independently by the uh, reporters. Um, the unique thing about this um, gunman was that he had good parents, right? He, he didn't come from a broken home. He had good parents who taught him values, principles, who taught him to care for others. So he had a good um, upbringing, actually, uh, but his family went through uh, financial difficulties, and he started to sense that, um, you know, the gangsters that he saw in the neighborhood were respected, you know, he, they were feared, they, they got the money, they got the honor and respect from the people, and he so he, he started... Um, the life in the gangs, so to speak, and at the uh, young age of 17 years of age, he uh, was selected or handpicked by the gang leaders and sent up to this very horrendous and rigorous training to be trained as a gunman or assassin, a hitman for the cartels. And, uh, you know, that the, the, the training, part of that training was, as he put it uh, in this statement, was to strip uh, them of every trace of humanity, no compassion, no mercy, uh, no feeling towards fellow men. Because obviously, if you want to kill someone, you, you, you have to be stripped of whatever essence of humanity to uh, care for one another. So, he, you know, in his words, they took everything away from him that was human and made him into a monster. And that was his own words. And in the world of these gangs, you rule by the power of violence, by the power of the gun to defend your territory, to make sure that your operations become viable against your rivals, opposition, the security forces, or whatever. It's the same thing. It's not just uh, this, this uh, armed violence. It's not just uh, the purview of street gangs or drug cartels. You have nations from the dawn of history that have used military violence or cohesive force to ensure national priorities or whatever. 
This is a, a statement uh, made by the Roman historian Tetricus in the first century AD. He, this is, he's criticizing the, his own Roman Empire. They said, you know, everywhere the Romans went, there'll be this robbery, slaughter, the plunder of the countries that they invaded, and they call all of this their empire. Uh, they make the country a desert. That means they, they kill off everyone. They destroy all the opposing armies, and there's no one left to fight them, and they call it their peace, uh, their Roman peace. And so from the dawn of history, from the successive empires that came, uh, military might, the threat of armed violence was the coin of the realm. That's how you establish your presence, uh, your empire, or whatever. The Roman Empire, by the way, was the ruling force over Israel at the time of Jesus. They were the latest in a series of empires that conquered and oppressed God's people, the people of Israel. And so for a long time, the people of Israel, God's people, were under these oppressive powers that use cohesive military force, the threat of armed violence to keep the people under subject. And so devout faithful Jews of that time and throughout the centuries when they were under oppression were praying that God would come and rescue them, save the nation, deliver them from their foreign enemies. And God in response to such violence, could have brought righteous judgment and destruction as in the days of Noah. But this time, instead of armed destruction, instead of taking life, God gave life. The life of his one and only son. In a threat and in a face, of all the monstrous violence and injustice in the world and against his people, he gave us a child, a son, to be born a savior and a king for his people. How did Israel fall from such a, from status as God's chosen people to such a state? They had all the promise and glory of being God's people. At the height of their national glory, Solomon built his temple about 900 plus years before the time of Jesus. And God's very presence filled the temple. God dwelt in the midst of the nation. But not long after, the hearts of God's people started to stray they went after other gods and made military alliances with other nations instead of trusting in God's faithfulness. They fought an internal civil war that broke the nation apart into two kingdoms, the north and south, and they persisted in rebellion despite God's uh, ascending of prophets to bring them back to the covenant, to, be, to covenant faithfulness with God. And so in the successive centuries, the nation of Israel started to be conquered in judgment of their sin and rebellion against God. The northern kingdom was lost to the Assyrians in about 722 BC, 
and the Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of which Jerusalem is the capital, fell to the Babylonians in about 586 BC. They lost the city, they lost the military might, but importantly, they also lost the temple. The place of God's dwelling was lost to them. And there's a sense, and with the, you know, the book of Ezekiel captures that, there's a sense that God has left them because of their sins, that God's presence left the temple just before the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. But in the successive years of exile and longing for God to come back and restore them, God graciously gave his people promises that one day God will return to them. That one day God will raise a king truly after his own heart in the line of David who will regain the throne of Israel. But when this king comes, how would he come? In ancient times, when a king comes to a city after a period of rebellion and strife with foreign enemies, there's two basic questions. One is, what would the king do with the rebels, the rebellion, those rebel leaders in the city? Usually, it's obviously, they will be put to the sword. Secondly, how would this king bring us the victory against our foreign enemies? What manner of military victories would he bring forth? And in the face of such expectations, this is what God promised in Zechariah chapter 9. See your king, and this is of course picked up by Matthew. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, but not with armed forces, not on a war horse to kill the rebels and to bring military victory, but no, lowly gentle, mild, riding on the donkey, which is an animal of peace. If the king comes to your city riding on the donkey, it means this is a peaceful entry of the king to the city. And God, through the prophet, is trying to paint a picture for the people that when his chosen king came, it will be a time of forgiveness and reconciliation, not a time of death and destruction. But it is not just peace to the people of Israel who had rebelled against God. It is also peace by bringing God's authority and reign over all the rest of the nations. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and so on. And so when God's chosen king comes back to redeem and save his people, he will not just be king over the nation of Israel, but he will extend God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. God's rule will cover all nations. And so when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, as we read in Matthew chapter 21, he is taking up that vocation, that calling of being God's chosen king. And through the book of Matthew, if you have been following the reading plan from chapter 1, Matthew has been telling us that since his birth, Jesus is indeed that promised king. The life of Jesus parallels the life 
of Israel in the past. Just as God sent a baby Moses to redeem his people, you see the life of Jesus through a baby uh, bringing hope of redemption for the nations. The parables that you saw in the previous chapters and in the chapters that you will be reading uh, in the coming week shows us Jesus taking up his vocation as God's Messiah, as the chosen anointed king. And we read in uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 9 there, Hosanna to the son of David, the crowds, the disciples, the pilgrims from the, the, from the area of Galilee, that's north of Jerusalem, they were convicted, they knew that Jesus is at last coming to take up this mantle, this calling of being God's chosen king, the son of David, who will rule in the name of the Lord. In terms of our uh, reflection and application of this passage, I want to uh, focus for us today, uh, different groups of people, how they've responded, how they've received Jesus, even as he took up that vocation, and he, even as he made it clear that he is taking up this vocation of being God's chosen king. There are three main groups if you read that passage. The first one is the, the crowds that followed him uh, quite likely from his journey from the northern uh, side of the country, Gadil the, 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 nation, the area around Galilee, north of uh, Jerusalem, even as the, Jesus made his journey to Jerusalem, the crowds and the pilgrims that were going to Jerusalem for the Passover festival uh, uh, was quite likely following him. All right? And of course, his core group of disciples as well. This is one main group that were convicted of who Jesus claims to be. Uh, the second group consisted of the residents in Jerusalem itself. And so we just have to make that distinction. They were not so-called the followers of Jesus that knew him from his ministry uh, up north in Galilee. These were residents of Jerusalem itself. And the third group is uh, the religious leaders, right? The religious authorities, the priests, the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees as a general uh, grouping there. And through our reflection uh, in the coming time, we will see these three types of responses, how they responded to Jesus. One is conviction, the other is curiosity, but it's a little bit deeper than that, we'll see uh, henceforth. And another one is contempt, or the rejection uh, of Jesus and his claims. I'll start with the, uh, the one on the right and then work our way down there. We start with responding with contempt. These are the religious elite, the leaders, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. And they were the ones among everyone else that should have recognized what God was doing through his son, Jesus Christ. But over the years, the religious elite, the religious authorities have been shoring up and building their own vested interests in securing their own power base, their position in society. In particular, the chief priests of the temple obviously had a position of compromise with the Roman authorities, they wanted to make sure that 
as regards to the religious life of the people, the Romans recognized them as the elite, the leaders, and so they wanted to preserve that relationship and that position that they had. But more than that, Jesus calls the whole temple structure a den of robbers. And he cleans out uh, uh, you know, the, the traders, the merchants, uh, in the courtyards of the temple. Now, what has been happening is that pilgrims from outside of Jerusalem obviously couldn't, it's not convenient to bring all your animals for sacrifice all the way up from wherever you came from into Jerusalem. Uh, you needed a, a convenient stop to buy animals for the sacrifice uh, in the temple. Also, you needed to exchange the coin into the coin of the temple to pay your temple tax. And while these services are necessary, apparently, the temple authorities have made this into a wild oil machine, and there are certain indications from uh, the Jewish religious records that uh, some segments of the society, they were actually quite angry. They think that the, the, you know, the temple system has been corrupted and it was exploitative uh, in terms of how they charged and so on. But Jesus is not just trying to reform those malpractices. He was enacting God's prophetic judgment against the temple system and its leaders. They were no longer functioning as God's temple where there is prayer, there is worship, there is devotion, that, that is healing. They were instead shoring up their privileges, their interests, their power base, their status in Jewish society. And so Jesus' action in the temple is not to say, I'm trying to improve you. It is actually saying God's judgment is coming on you because you're holding on to the values and your power base that is opposed to God's plan. And later on, this judgment on the temple came to be fulfilled some decades later in AD 70 when the Romans actually destroyed the temple, the temple at that time of Jesus. But contrast that with what Jesus does, actually does in the temple courtyards. When Jesus came to Jerusalem, he cleaned out the temple and he ministered to the people. Long before the time of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35, talked about the time when God will return and save his people. And here is what Isaiah says about what would happen in that time when God returns to his people. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a, a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Uh, in fact, Charles Wesley in his uh, famous hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to, to sing, right? He, he took that, uh, part of the stanza, he took that from Isaiah chapter 35 to describe the redemptive healing that will happen when God returns to his people. And this is what Matthew records, what Jesus did in the temple courts. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And so Jesus signifies that God has indeed returned to his people. And you want to make a contrast to then the temple system and to Jesus because they are two contrasting um, rival authorities. Who has God? 
who has God working through their ministries. And very clearly from Matthew, the temple has ceased to function as God's temple while Jesus enacts the acts that God himself would do when he returned to his people. The religious leaders had ample opportunity to think clearly about what Jesus meant, the claims, the life, the ministry of Jesus. They did not do that. They were self-assured in their own values, in their own teachings, in their own authority, which led to complacency in their position in God's eyes. If you were to ask each and every one of them, they would insist that they were zealous for God, that they were faithful to the God of their forefathers. But in actuality, in reality, they were acting against God's purposes because of their best self-interest. So their complacency led to contempt of God's priorities and compromise with the values of the world in shoring up their financial and political interests in contrast to God's purposes. This is a serious, of course, consideration for us as the church. Every time the church confuses its mission and priorities in that we shore up our own agendas, our own programs, our own ambitions, and fool ourselves to think that these are God's priorities, then we ought to be careful. Because that complacency can actually lead us to be contemptuous of God's priorities. If the Lord Jesus Christ say, says that, you know, where your treasure is, your heart is also, that ought to be a red flag for church leaders and all of us to be careful how we live, our lifestyles, what are our priorities, what do we invest in. I always remember uh, uh, Bishop Emeritus Hua Yong uh, when he uh, spoke at one of our track annual conferences. This was a few years ago. In fact, it was uh, uh, before the, uh, if I'm not wrong, two elections ago, um, and he spoke to the uh, uh, annual conference, and he uh, gave a challenge to the delegates there and said that, you know, the Malaysian church, um, you know, even when we are praying for the nation, the fear is that we are praying because of our self-interest, not because of God's interest or priorities. That we are praying because, of course, we want economic welfare and we want our children to get better education. And we are praying from that perspective instead of being confronted with God's priorities. And if we keep to that, then, of course, how we react, how we pray and how we minister will be more according to our self-interest while we will be holding God's priorities such as it is in contempt as well. 
And contempt with God's priorities always leads to compromise with worldly values. We compromise with worldly values when we show up and prioritize status in society, wealth, earthly riches, and security. You see, I, I think that when the devil disrupts the church, he doesn't need us to explicitly deny the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't need to do that. Uh, he can allow us to sing the same songs and to say the words that we think are good, Jesus is Lord. We can, he, he, he will allow us all these words, but all he needs to do is to make us compromise with worthy values. That we think prosperity in monetary terms, uh, a status in society, all of that are what God wants for us. That's all he needs to do, and the mission and the purpose and the weakness of the church will be compromised. In fact, there is a crisis right now within the American Christian evangelicals in terms of their weakness and testimony because of the Trump presidency and whatever is happening politically there. That at least in the eyes of the rest of the Americans, Christians or Christian evangelicals seem to be more focused on having their agendas being supported by Trump rather than speaking out against character issues. And it's a serious uh, consideration. We ought to be careful about that. Malaysian Christians as well need to align ourselves with Jesus' kingdom values rather than our self-interest as we look and pray and minister in the midst of whatever is happening in our nation. The second group, responding with curiosity. These were temple, I mean, they, they, they were residents of Jerusalem, and they were stirred because they heard the commotion uh, where the crowds celebrated and sang their hosannas. They were stirred, uh, you know, with curiosity, and even a little bit more than that, they were, you know, there's some upheaval in their emotions. Who is this man? Um, you know, what, is, what does he mean by taking on this signs and symbols of Messiah kingship? What would that man mean for my position, for my welfare, for my status? What will he do for our nation? And so in verse 10 of chapter 21, they were stirred to say, what manner of man is this? that he's causing this excitement among the pilgrims. What would it mean for me? So they were curious or intensely excited about what Jesus might mean for them. But will this curiosity lead to believing conviction? Curiosity being open being troubled by the claims of Jesus is actually a good starting point because if we seriously are honest with God about the claims of Jesus, our curiosity, our openness, even some of our distress at the claims and teachings of Jesus might actually lead us to make a decisive commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but the opportunity to make that decisive commitment, that window of opportunity to decide is always closing. And there will, become a, there will come a time when we need to make a decisive decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. If I have a medical problem, you know, and my family, you know, advised me, you know, you have to go and see the doctor and get that sorted out. If I delay and keep on postponing and, ah, you know, I'm not, it's not going to, um, you know, I'm not going to worry about that, you know, I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, that, that window for me to respond and get help is always closing. There will come a time when obviously it's going to be too late when that decision to take decisive action medically will not be available anymore. And so when we fail to take decisive decision, when we fail to decide with conviction, other people will decide for us or the circumstances will decide for us. We will lose the opportunity and the power to make a decision. That's what it is. Earlier on, Jesus taught in Matthew 13 about the parable of the sower. And this is something uh, also related to how the, 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 the people responded to Jesus as king. The parable of the sower is obviously the soils the condition of our hearts and how we are responding to the seed of the gospel or to God's word. And the challenge Jesus poses in uh, verse 12 of chapter 13 there is, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. You see, in the parable of the sower, not to preach a second sermon, no, <laughs> but in the parable of the sower, there's only one response that produces abundance in life. All the other responses did not, right? The, all the other responses, some of them at least, they were actually open, right, to the, to the word of the gospel. They believed with joy. They were open. But they never persevered with faith and conviction. And so Jesus is saying, whatever little you have and you don't persist, in decisive commitment, even that will be taken away from you. We see this happening with the residents in Jerusalem. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, that was his final week of his earthly ministry. He was going into the final climatic confrontation with the religious authorities of Israel. And we read later, that the religious leaders, because the, 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 the people of Jerusalem generally did not have a firm conviction about Jesus, they were able to be influenced by the religious authorities to move for Jesus to be killed, to be executed by the Romans. Their curiosity did not lead them to conviction. Their curiosity left them in a position to be exploited by the religious leaders to stand in contempt of God's chosen Messiah. They shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And so, while we are 
in a position to decide. You know, we, somehow there is some conviction in us already that through the years, through Christmas, through Easter, the message of the gospel has been coming to us. There's some level of curiosity and conviction and even maybe some distress at the claims of Jesus, but the time to decide, the opportunity to decide is always closing. And I wanna, just want to encourage you by God's grace that all of us here will make that firm conviction, that firm com commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The last group is ones, the ones that will respond with conviction, and obviously these are his called disciples uh, in traveling with him, um, and for very likely pilgrims from the area of Galilee who had heard or seen what Jesus has done in his early ministry. The miracles, the teachings, the parables, they are witnesses of what they have heard and seen, and they responded with conviction. They knew that Jesus was more than just a teacher in the line of the religious authorities and the Pharisees. He was something more, and they believed with conviction as he entered Jerusalem that indeed he is the chosen king that God appointed, Hosanna, to the son of David. This is a messianic claim because at that time, the people regarded the Messiah as coming from the line of David. And so when the crowd said with conviction, praise or hosanna to the son of David, they recognized Jesus' claims of messiahship. But the challenge for them is whether this conviction would survive and endure through the ordeal of the cross that Jesus had to face at the end of that fateful week. Because they carried their own expectations of what the Messiah should do and can do and will do. And some of that revolves around, again, military victory. That once Jesus is enthroned in Jerusalem, he will kick out the Romans and jolly well put to sword all those religious enemies that have been hounding them from the start of their ministry. They might have had visions of their expectations. Will, those conviction, will their conviction survive the ordeal of what Jesus is about to do? It begs the question, what does the kingship of Jesus look like? If he is king, what is Jesus prepared to do to build and establish his kingdom? It's a line from Lion King uh, that I thought might be useful. He, this is Mufasa, the, the father of that cup, Simba. He said, while others search for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. And Jesus gave himself, gave his life for the sake of his people as well as the enemies of his people. He embraced the calling of the cross as God's way to decisively deal with the problem of sin because the greatest enemy of God's people were not the Romans, so to speak. The greatest enemy of God's people is sin, which infects God's people and the rest of the world. And he embraced that vocation, that necessity of the cross as a way of salvation. As his 
followers stand, we too embrace Jesus' way of being God's people, and that is through the self-sacrifice of the cross. And what does it mean for us? It means that as we are followers of Jesus and faithful subjects of his kingdom, we would be turning to the other cheek. We would be going the extra mile, giving up our cloaks, our possessions. It would look like loving our enemies, blessing those who curse us, praying for those who persecute us. And this is where our Malaysian church and us as individuals will be sorely tested. I remember over the election cycles, two election cycles ago, and it, even to the present day, um, the, the, some of the messages that we share as Christians is kind of disturbing because we, while we are rightly angry at what has happened to the country, that anger in a lot of cases has turned into hatred, uh, mockery, um, very mean type of um, judgmental statements against the previous leaders, whatever. And if we, we delve into that stream of responding to national crisis and injustice, then we cease to, the, the, to be the people that God sends, the meek, the mournful, the merciful, the peacemaker. We cease, we, we, we are not functioning in that role anymore. And to be faithful subjects of our king, we have to embrace what the king teaches us how to serve him. And that's turning to their cheek, loving our enemies, and so on. The cross also means the death of our expectation. Remember, the devil need not make us curse the Lord Jesus Christ or, you know, leave, uh, go to the temples or idols. All he needs to do is to make sure that we compromise with the worldly values, social status, uh, wealth, pursuit of wealth, and, and a certain lifestyle. All he needs to do is that, and the church loses its power and the testimony of the gospel. The uh, Mexican gunman, he's, uh, you know, he's totally lost, right? He's a monster and, you know, he, it's a hopeless cause. But remember, his parents brought him up in a, in a good way and his parents were uh, religious people and his mother in, in particular, were, every night, you know, he, when he was, remember, he's just 17 when he became a, you know, a hitman and, and 20, by the time of 22, he's a mass murderer. But uh, the, his mother would not give up on him and every night, uh, while he was sleeping, the mother would come and whisper prayers over him, uh, would not give up on him. And uh, at one point, he told his mother, stop doing that. You know, your God cannot save me. Obviously, he's already a monster. He's a, a well-oiled um, hitman for the gangsters. But somewhere along the line, he got arrested and he was confronted with his sin. And there was a pastor who was also an ex-gangster who ministered to them in the prison. He was in a special witness pro protection program. And uh, yeah, he came full face with what he had become, the monster that he become. 
and uh, you know, poured out his heart to the pastor and eventually came to the faith. But this is what the kingship of Jesus looks like. It looks like a, a, a crying mother praying for a lost son. That's what it looks like. It's, it doesn't look like the power of the gun. It doesn't look like the power of cohesive violence or aggression to win over support. It looks like a mother praying and crying over a lost son. It looks like us praying for the sick when the doctors say there is no hope. It, it looks like us going to broken, dysfunctional families and trying to help them. It looks like a lot of apparent weakness and hopelessness and frustration and anxieties because that is the space that God calls us to serve in. But looks can be deceiving because underneath this apparent weakness is an immense, immeasurable power that is at work in you because you serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what it looks like. Uh, it may not be very clear, but uh, of course, the, the New York Times, they couldn't tell his name. He's under protection. And anyway, the, the guy in pink is, you know, he's in that revival um, meeting with the Bible there. And uh, through the merry turmoils that he went through, um, he had that born again experience. He said, you know, the other person, that monster that he had become is dead. And in that sense, he has received new life in Christ. But it's not a pretty story because he's still on the run. He's still, obviously, he, he uh, testified against, uh, you know, cartel members. So his life is uh, threatened. Life of his family is threatened. He's on the run. Some episodes of relapsing into the drug trade. The pastor had to intervene and tell him to stop to do that. So it's, it's always a messy picture. And a lot of times, God places us in situations where it is messy where we have to rely on God's divine grace and authority to break through some of the brokenness and sinfulness that we find and God asks us to minister to. But here is the thing, the way of the king's cross, the cross of Jesus, leads to the power of his resurrection. Because we are not serving and ministering, we're not, we're not doing the works of the kingdom on human strength, but on divine power. And if we hold true in our conviction and faith, if we, as in Isaiah chapter 35, minister to those who are fearful-hearted, who are anxious, who are in desperate straits, and tell them, be not be fearful-hearted because your God is coming to save you. If we are those who are redeemed and convicted, then we will enter God's kingdom. And everlasting joy will crown our heads. And gladness and joy will overflow into our lives and into the lives of God's people. And so as we head towards this celebration of the life of Christ and facing into the new year, the question posed almost 2,000 years ago is still relevant for us today. Who is this man? How will we respond to him? How would we receive him? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, 
and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.